Good morning, everybody. My name is Jared. I'm, as Pastor Eric said, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you as we come to God's Word to look at what he has to say to us from Hebrews this morning. So I invite you to remain standing as we read our passage today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Let's read that together this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, we've been going through a prayer series that Pastor Eric has been taking us through. And today uh, we're, we're taking a, a brief hiatus from that prayer series. Although I, I did choose this passage for a few reasons. One, it's one of my, uh, one of the dearest passages to me in my own Christian walk, but also because uh, it is very much connected to prayer. As we just read, one of the things the author of Hebrews wants us to do is to, to draw near to the throne of grace. As we're going to see, that, that means, and at least, to pray. It means to pray. And so this, this passage in particular is focused on who it is that we are praying to, who the one is we're praying to, and what God offers to those who draw near to him in prayer. So in terms of the prayer series, my hope today is that this is more like a, a scenic detour. And we'll have to take some time to, to look at and to meditate on the one that we come to as we pray. A few years ago, I was listening to the story of a former ministry worker whose story really, really struck me, and it stayed with me for a while. He was a leader, or had been a leader in a large Christian ministry, and then a leader in his church after that. So what stuck out to me Perhaps surprisingly was his description of his relationship through his, his early childhood and early adulthood. He'd always lived with this low-grade sense that God was disappointed in him. And he wasn't really experiencing the Christian walk the way that God intended him to. As he talked, I got the sense that he essentially had as much relationship with Jesus as he did with Peter or one of the other apostles, who's just, Jesus was essentially a, just an historical figure who had lived 2,000 years ago, but he had no sense of, of present living relationship with Jesus as his living Savior and friend. He felt distant from God. Our passage today is about how we find help during trials by being close to Jesus, by drawing near to him. Jesus gives help to his friends that draw near to him. But we know that's not always an easy thing to do. Perhaps it's not always clear how to do it. And so it may be that you feel like that ministry worker did, that you're around the things of God often. You're around the people of God, or perhaps not. But you're never around God himself. This invitation to draw near might almost seem like a tease more than anything else. So whether that's you today or not, what I want to do is I want to spend our time this morning looking at, at two pleas 
that the author of Hebrews makes for those who are followers of Jesus. Two pleas. First plea is to hold fast to your confession. The second plea is to draw near to Jesus. Hold fast to your confession and draw near to Jesus. Now, as we look at those two things today, I don't think there's many Christians who set out not wanting to do those things. No one becomes a Christian and doesn't want to hold fast to their confession, doesn't want to be close to Jesus. But then life happens. Our times of need come, trials come. And if you're not careful, it can leave you questioning if you really believe all of this. Right? Do you really believe what you set out believing about Jesus? Perhaps leave you feeling like God is far away. So my hope today, as we look at those two pleas that the author gives us, that we can spend some time considering the reasons he gives that we do those things, the reasons we hold fast to Jesus, and the reason we are to draw near to him. And the reasons he gives all have to do with, with Jesus himself, what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus is like as our Savior. So we're going to spend our time meditating on Jesus today. As we do that, I pray that the Lord's going to strengthen you and your faith, that you will feel that invitation in an even stronger way to draw near to him, especially during times of need. So let's start with that first plea. Hold fast to your confession. Now, we're, we're, we're kind of parachuting into the book of Hebrews here. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament, but it is just full of Old Testament references, Old Testament themes, all sorts of allusions. There's, there's these major themes that run through the whole book. There's too many, of, there's too many for us to, to grab our minds around this morning. Uh, but there's, there's two in particular that I want to focus on today, two, two themes that are present in all of Hebrews that are, but are particularly present in this passage. And those, the first theme we're going to see in our passage uh, is the importance of not falling away from your faith. The author of Hebrews is writing to people who, who must in some way be wavering in their faith or, or tempted to waver in some way. So all through the book, the author is talking about the importance of feeding your faith, feeding your faith with regular time with God, regular times of worship at church, looking at the examples of faith of other believers. All those things are how we feed our faith. And another theme we're going to look at in our passage is how Jesus is better Jesus is better than anything, but in particular, Jesus is better than the sacrificial system that the Israelites used to have in place in the Old Testament. Now, he's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than any other priest that they might have had. Jesus is better. So those are a couple themes I want you to keep in mind as we're going through this passage here today. And so let's look again at verse 14, the end of verse 14. We're going to see one of the themes come out there. It says this at the end of verse 14, Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, don't walk away from what you believe about Jesus. That word for, for hold fast has this sense of kind of seizing on to something, right, with a powerful grip, seizing on and not letting go. I have a one-year-old daughter uh, named Joanna. We call her Jojo, and we have a three-year-old named Silas. And if you know Silas, you know the kid loves cars. He loves them. He has a basket of cars he, he pulls around with him all through the house. It's full of Hot Wheels cars. Jojo loves her brother, which means she loves the things that Silas loves. And it's pretty incredible, the instincts that a one-year-old can have to go into a basket full of, full of hundreds of Hot Wheels cars and pick out the ones that she knows 
matter to him. And then when she grabs onto one, she does not let go. <laughs> and one-year-olds can have a strong grip if they have something they know is, is a treasured possession of their siblings. Right, Jojo grabs onto those cars with this, this white-knuckled power grip that is accompanied by screams if you try to pull her hands apart. That's the image the author here wants us to have. Seizing onto our confession with a white-knuckled Jojo power grip. So that leads to the question, what is it that we're grabbing onto? What is our confession that we're we're to hold onto? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Eric talked about how Christians are to confess sin to God when we pray. That's not the kind of confession we're talking about here. This is a different kind of confession. Here the author means a confession of what you believe to be true. In Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul gives one of the most succinct descriptions of what the Christian's confession is. It's beautiful. Maybe you know it. He says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we believe. That's what our, our confession is. It's Christ. It's him crucified. And it's our confession that saves us. When we confess those things about Jesus, you will be saved. That's why we hold fast on to that confession. That's why we hold fast to what we know is true about Jesus and your belief in him. I want to go back to the first part of verse 14. We we jumped to the end of it, to to the plea, the hold fast part. So let's go back to the beginning of verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. The first part of the verse is where we see... What makes it possible for us to hold fast to that confession? So let's read that again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So you might be able, you could turn that verse around a bit and say, hold fast to your confession because you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have a great high priest. That's not very common language anymore. We don't talk about high priests very often, although we do here at Hope fairly regularly talk about the Old Testament concept of priesthood and priests. It's a really important concept to understand, this very critical role of Jesus, one of of his roles as our Savior. So I'm going to go back over some of these these priesthood concepts again, just so we can understand what these these, uh, recipients of this letter would have had in mind when when the author calls Jesus the great high priest. So in the Old Testament, the priests were the people who were in charge of Israel's relationship with God. So they handled everything with the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple. They guarded it. They were the caretakers of it. They were the ones that would would receive the sacrificial animals or produce and then actually perform the sacrifice. So it was a very bloody job. A lot of blood related to being a priest. But it was a necessary job. And only the priests were allowed to do it. And the priests had to be Levites, which was one of the tribes of Israel. Now this whole system of the priesthood was in place, partly, to keep barriers around God's holiness. Now that is not because God didn't want people to be close to him. And that's not because God didn't want anything to do with Israel. But those barriers were there to protect the Israelites from getting too close and being killed by their sin. And so there were curtains that would separate different parts of the temple out. 
the, 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 the priests were there to, to make sacrifices. They were keeping the other Israelites out of the certain holy places of the temple. Only Levites could be priests. And only the high priest could go all the way in to the, to the innermost part of the temple, called the Holy of Holies. It's where God's presence was most, most potently present among the Israelites. So it had to be a mo- the most protected room. If anyone beside the high priest tried to enter the Holy of Holies, he or she was going to die. And so once a year, when the high priest would go in, he was only allowed to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And what he would do is he would start outside, he would sacrifice a bull, he would bring the blood of the bull, probably in a, a bowl of some kind, through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and there he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. That was to atone for his sin. That was to make up for his sin. Then he'd go back outside, sacrifice a goat. He'd bring the blood of the goat into the Holy of Holies with him. He'd sprinkle that. And that blood was to cover the Israelites. And so the high priests and the Israelites were reminded every year that that should have been their blood. That should have been their blood. But God was overlooking their sin because... Was allowing them to sacrifice animals in place themselves. So all this made it really clear to the Israelites over and over again. Sin required sacrifice. Sin requires blood. And entering God's presence was very, very dangerous because of sin. Not because God's unpredictable, but because we, you, humans, had to approach God with the greatest caution and care. Because if the high priest didn't follow exactly how God prescribed it, he was in danger of his sin causing him to die. But he kept doing it year after year, he kept going into the Holy of Holies, kept slaughtering the animals, kept carrying those bowls of blood in there with him until Jesus came and brought his own blood as the offering. Now earlier in, chapter, in Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 17, it says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is a a very unusual one. We don't use that at all uh, in day-to-day vernacular. And even if you really know your theology, you might forget what this one actually means. So propitiation is a gift or an offering that's, that's given to appease someone's anger or wrath. So that sacrifice that the high priest was making was the propitiation for the sins of Israel and himself. And so that God's wrath, because of that gift, was turned aside away from him and from the Israelites. So when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus makes propitiation for your sin, what he's meaning is that Jesus is making a payment to appease God's wrath that should have been directed at you. And that matters because of the passage that come right before ours. I'm going to read that for us here. Hebrews 4, verses 11 to 14. 13, excuse me. It says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
There's a lot going on here in this passage, but the part I want to highlight is that there is no such thing as keeping a secret from God. God's word sees through everything and everyone. There's all sorts of ways that that we can tell ourselves that our hearts aren't too bad. We can justify our actions if, if someone really understood us or understood the context. And we forget our sin all the time, don't we? It's so easy to forget about our sin. Right? Just for an example, think about all the times you lied in 2021. Can you list them? I'm certain that you can't. We're all prone to justify our sin and as a result to forget them. But what God's word does is it pierces down through our souls into those hearts that tell us that we're actually pretty good. And there's nothing that we can hide from God. All of us will be naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's not talking about physical nakedness. That means that every single thing that you've ever done, every single motive you've had for anything you've done, every single thing will be brought into the light. And you're going to have to give an account for it one day. God's holiness and goodness and justice necessarily mean that he must respond to sin and evil with wrath. So what do you think you can give to satisfy the wrath of God? What's the propitiation that's enough to appease his wrath? There's nothing that we can give. But Jesus had something he could provide. He could provide his own life, his own blood as the sacrifice and offering to turn God's wrath aside so that God's anger that should have been at you gets redirected. And we know where it was directed to. It was directed onto Christ on the cross. So this is why it matters that Jesus is our high priest. Right? Verse 14, he's not just our high priest. Verse 14 says he's our, our great high priest. And rather than, than passing through the curtain to enter the Holy of Holies with a bowl of goat's blood for you, Jesus passed through the heavens. He went straight to the heavenly throne room itself. And that's where he is right now. Our merciful and faithful high priest who didn't bring a goat's blood with him. He brought his own blood as the sacrifice, the propitiation for your sin. And he gives you rest in in response. So brothers and sisters, this is why it matters that we hold on to our confession. That is our only route for salvation. So don't lose your grip on Jesus. Don't lose your grip on your salvation, on what you believe about Jesus. The true Christian is marked by by walking with faith all the way to the end. That's what we call perseverance. So the encouragement for us here today is if you are someone who believes in Jesus and follow him, then don't lose your grip on him. Hold on to him. Hold on to your confession. Now maybe that you want to do that, you want to hold on to your confession and hold fast to Jesus, but it still seems like Jesus is distant. It still doesn't seem like he's very, he's very close. It's hard to hold fast to something you can't see. The author knows that, I think, and he anticipates that struggle in, our, in verses 14 and 15. Excuse me, 15 and 16. And so that's going to take us to our second plea, which is this, to draw near to Jesus. So let's read verses 15 and 16 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Followers of Jesus know what it is like to feel weak in faith. And this passage here says something really remarkable. It's that Jesus understands that because he chose to experience weakness himself by becoming a human. Which means he knows what it's like to be tempted to sin in every respect as we have. Which is a really incredible thought. That means he knows what it's like to be tempted to envy someone else. Jesus knows what it's like to, to be tempted to lose your temper with a coworker. And although he never did those things, he never sinned, he gets it. And that gives him the ability to sympathize with us. A few years ago, when I lived in Philadelphia and was working at a college ministry, I, uh, I had a student in our college ministry make some accusations against me that, that hit me completely out of left field. Completely out of left field. He was a student that I had gotten to know very well. We met weekly. He was someone I considered a friend. And I came to find out later he'd been struggling with a number of things throughout really much of his life. And something I had said in a group text message had, had really, really hurt him. Had caused some of these things that he said. One of them being that I didn't really know him or care about him at all. Which at the time was, was incredibly painful. So I, I remember very distinctly pulling out my phone and calling my supervisor who was one of my best friends, still is. Uh, <laughs> while I tried to give him an, an account of what had happened, it was very choppy, emotional. I was on the phone dodging folding chairs and coffee cups in our college room. And I will never forget how he responded. He was so gentle, so sympathetic. He helped me kind of put some order to my thoughts. He, he read me a passage of scripture that, that just <laughs> nailed exactly what I needed at that moment. And he gave me some ideas for what to do next to move forward towards resolution with my, that student. Which was very helpful because we did wind up resolving that and our relationship was stronger at the end of it. But my supervisor understood my, my weird mix of anger and sadness and confusion because I had come and actually taken his job. He had hired me to, to take over the job. He used to do the college ministry. And as I, had, I came to find out, he had also had a student falsely accuse him of something uh, before I had arrived. So he got it. He got the feeling and the feelings that I was experiencing there. And perhaps more helpfully, he knew the different directions that I was going to be tempted to sin in response. I was able to head those off for me and help me deal with them and take steps of wisdom instead of anger. Have you ever had that experience where someone hears something you're going through and just gets it? Maybe even better than you? Can put some, give you some categories to think about what you're experiencing and you realize it's because they've experienced something different? It just makes you want to say, yes, you get it. You understand me. Now tell me what to do. How do I do this? What do I do next? That is exactly how Jesus understands you, brothers and sisters. He understands what you're going through. Whatever aspect of your life makes you feel most weak right now, he gets it and understands it. And it might not be that he experienced the exact same scenario when he was on earth, but he still knows every temptation and weakness we can experience as, as humans. My, my supervisor was a totally different accusation and relationship context that he had dealt with himself. But all of the same temptations, emotional experience that I experienced and help I needed, they were all the same. And the same goes for you and Jesus. He knows what it's like to be human because he became a human man and fully experienced life as a human being. 
That's what we call the incarnation. Jesus, God the Son, becoming a human. And I, I think this is one of those extraordinary parts of the incarnation uh, that, that we don't talk about as much. We talk often about how Jesus became a man so that he could live a perfect life and so that he could die for our sins. And all that is true. But he became a man for this too so that he could identify with you. Understand what your experience is of being a human. He didn't feel hungry in heaven, but he chose to come and experience hunger. He wasn't tempted towards sin in heaven, but he came to be a human so that you could know that he understands what you are walking through and fully sympathize with you. I read a story a while back that described this, this kind of machine that would let men feel the same kinds and levels of, of pain as a woman going through labor. I'd be willing to bet that a very low percentage of husbands chose to go through with that, even if it would help them sympathize better with their wives. That's exactly what Jesus did. And he did it willingly. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. He did that so he could help you. And what did we do in response? We killed him. We killed him for doing all of that. But he knew that would happen, and he came anyway. Because that is how much your great high priest loves you, Christian. If you've ever had an experience like I did with my supervisor, you know that the the natural reaction is to want to keep going back to that person, (laughs) saying, here's the next thing that happened. What do I do now? Help me figure this part out. And that is exactly what Jesus wants you to do with him. He wants you to draw near to him so that he can help you. His sympathy is an invitation for you to, to know that you can come to him with whatever you're experiencing. He wants you to be near him so that he can help you and give you his mercy and his grace. Now, this may seem obvious, but I think it's important to notice how Jesus wants to help you. It's not by halting or stopping the trial or the issue or whatever it is you're experiencing that's difficult. He wants to help you by giving you mercy and grace. He wants to help you by giving you mercy, not giving you what you deserve for your sin. Right, that's that's, that's the, the, the aversion of God's wrath, averting God's wrath away from you. He wants to give you grace to help you, favor, right, his own righteousness and salvation, things that we do not deserve from him. So whatever trial you may be going through right now or, or will go through, that's a great question to ask if you think that that's what you actually need most. Do I believe that I really need God's mercy and grace more than anything else to help me walk through whatever trial I'm going through? It's natural for us to think that what we really need is for the trial to stop. But in God's infinite wisdom, he uses our trials to draw us near to him so that we can receive what we actually need, which is his mercy and his grace to help us walk through those trials faithfully. When we're going through any kind of trial, Scripture is relentless in showing us that, that the place God wants us to look is inwards for the problem and upwards for the solution. I think our natural temptation is to look 
inwards for the solution and outwards for the problem. That's the route to despair. There's no help there. But Jesus' offer of mercy and grace help us to recognize that our main problem really is inward. Our main problem is what we find inside of ourselves, the sin that's there. And when we realize that, that helps us to recognize that the only true source of help is upwards. That's the grace. And what that grace will look like depends on your situation, but God delights in giving grace to those who come to him for help. So what do we do with all this? The author tells us that there's an extraordinary invitation in this passage that flows from all of these things, and that is to draw near to the throne of grace. And how do we draw near? We pray. We pray. We go to Jesus. We ask him for help in times of trial. Go to your heavenly king and ask him for mercy and grace to help in a time of need. Go there first. And go with confidence, knowing that that is a place where you will receive what God has promised to give to you. You will receive mercy and grace to help. You will receive the help that you need whatever trial you're a part of, you're in. This is an invitation that is made possible only by the work of Jesus as our high priest, who's turned God's wrath aside, opened up the way not just into the inner room of the temple, he's opened up the way all the way to heaven for us so that we can speak directly to the one seated on the heavenly throne who loves you. Jesus has given his blood to cleanse you, became a man so that you could trust that he actually sympathizes with you and that you can know he wants you to come near to him. I love that the author uses that phrase, draw near. It tells us what kind of relationship God wants to bring you into. It's one of intimate closeness with him where you actually get to know him, not just know about him, but know him. And he will respond with mercy and grace to you. So I want to end this morning with a few thoughts about that throne of grace. What what can we learn about the fact that, that the author calls this the throne of grace? First, that throne of grace is a throne. That means there's a king sitting on it. And he is a king with glory and power beyond what we can really perceive or imagine as human beings. And so we don't come to him casually. We can come confidently as Hebrews says, reverently. But we ought to come recognizing that when we come to a throne, we are approaching the king of the universe who has invited us there, but he is still the king of the universe. But that also means if he is the king of the universe and he invites us here, there is nothing, there is nothing that you can bring to him that is going to outstretch his ability to help you. So take confidence in that. Second, this throne is really a throne of grace. But that is only a throne of grace for Jesus' followers. Christians who come to this throne are met there with more affection and joy than you can imagine. Because the Father loves his Son. And when he looks at you, if you have trusted in Christ, he looks at you with the same affection he enjoys in his Son. Again, this is a throne. And it's only a throne of grace for those who have turned away from living in sin and who who truly believe that Jesus is God's son and have made him the Lord of their life. Which means you've let Jesus call the shots on how you live. You've chosen to walk away from your sin, to repent of it when it comes up in your life. 
and to live a life that honors and pleases God in Christ. But if that's not you, if Jesus has not, if you've not committed to Christ as your Savior, if you've not followed him as your Lord and Savior, then this is not a throne of grace for you. This is a throne of judgment. All that you have ever done is going to be exposed one day, and you will have to give an account to the one sitting on that throne for everything you have ever done. And you will have nothing shielding you from God's wrath on that day. But it's not too late. You can follow Jesus right now, and he will forgive you. If you follow Jesus, confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then that throne of judgment does become a throne of grace. God will take your guilt, take his wrath, and that goes on to Jesus on the cross, not on to you anymore. And in exchange, you get Christ's righteousness and the confidence that you will live eternally with God forever. But none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So if that is you, I, I ask you, do not delay on this. Jesus offers you mercy for your sins, grace to help you live, and the only way to truly know and draw near to God. So if you'd like to learn more about that or hear more about that, I would love to talk to you about that. Pastor Eric would love to talk with you about that. Please come speak to us afterwards. Brothers and sisters, those who have confessed Christ, you have a great, great high priest. He has gone through the heavens to be your high priest, and now he's inviting you to draw near to him. And he will give you mercy and grace to help you in time of need. So hold fast to him. Go to him. As we continue in our prayer series, keep this in mind. This is your Savior. He loves you, and he wants you to draw near to him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have made a way for us to yourself. Father, we're grateful that it's you on the throne. Jesus, we're grateful it's you there, not us. Jesus, you don't despise us for our weakness. You don't say that you did it so that we need to somehow fix ourselves and stop sinning on our own. Instead, you're sympathetic and kind and merciful to us. Father, for those whose, whose faith may be wavering today, I ask that you'd strengthen them with this vision of their Savior. Help all of us to hold fast to him. Lord, I ask that you would draw us near to yourself, that we would enjoy the unmatchable joy of receiving your help at your throne of grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.